Okay, let's get started. At this time, if you are not already muted, we ask that everyone in, in attendance mute your microphones and stay muted throughout the meeting. Good evening and welcome to the Oklahoma City Tuesday Night Big Book Study Group. My name is Wendy Zimbrich and I am an alcoholic. Join me for a moment of silence followed by the set aside prayer, which is in the chat, if you'd like to follow along. Dear God, please set aside everything I think I know about myself, this book, my illness, these steps, and especially about you, dear God, so that I might have an open mind and a new experience with all these things. Please help me to see the truth. Amen. This meeting is a big book study. We recommend that you have a big book in front of you to follow along. If you do not have a book, we want to make sure that you get one. Please post in the chat section if you need a book and a member will connect with you to make sure that you get one. We would like to remind you that AA is not affiliated with treatment centers, detention centers, or other facilities. The experience shared in this meeting is not necessarily the opinions of this group or of Alcoholics Anonymous as a whole. Our facilitator is not an expert on the big book or the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. We have simply asked the facilitator to share their experience, strength, and hope as it relates to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. With respect to the seventh tradition, we are called to be self-supporting. As such, we suggest that you take an active role in supporting your districts, areas, intergroups, and GSO during this time by sending in your contribution directly. Out of respect for the facilitator and others in attendance, we ask that you stay muted throughout. Do not post in the chat during the meeting and be mindful of your activities if you're sharing your video with the group. Thank you. This is the AA preamble. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problems and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution, does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any cause. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and to help others to achieve sobriety. I have stated that I am an alcoholic. Are there any other alcoholics present? Yay! Here we are. The format of our meeting is that the facilitator will share their experience with the big book until 7.30, and then the floor will be open for questions. The meeting will end at 7.45. Tonight, we are on page five in Bill's story, the paragraph that begins, liquor ceased to be a luxury. And I will turn it over to Cliff. Please give him a warm welcome. Thanks, Wendy. Hey, everybody. Cliff Good and Grateful Alcoholic. Good to be here. Good to be sober. And uh, we're doing a live book study in Oklahoma City. We'll have a flyer out here in a couple. If you want to, if you like, want to get to a destination place, you'll want to come to Oklahoma City, right, Phil? Destination place. Well, my sponsor and I are going to do a weekend book study. It'll be a lot of fun. And uh, if you're looking to come, we'll have a flyer, get the event. It's going to be the next last week. Here, but uh, good to see everybody tonight. And uh, Glad to be here and be sober tonight and uh, be doing this with you all. So page five, we're talking about our good buddy, Bill here. And uh, Bill is describing for us what he was like. He's going to do that for a little bit more. 
He's going to tell us what he was like uh, for a couple more pages, and then we'll we'll get to that uh, turning point with him. So page five, first paragraph, liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. Bathtub, gin, two bottles a day, and often three got to be routine. Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars, and I would pay my bills at the bar and delicatessen. Notice that he's not contributing anything to Lois's parents who he's living with, right? He didn't say anything about it. I help my, my father and mother-in-law with the bills because I'm mooching off of them for the last couple of years. No, he's paying the bar bills so he can keep drinking. I mean, selfishness, self-centered. This we think is the root of our problem. It says, um, this went on endlessly, and I began to waken very early in the morning, shaking violently. Remember when he was golfing just a page ago, and when he was golfing, he was jittery in the morning, just needed a little something to quiet the nerves, just the hair of the dog to take the edge off. Now he's getting up, and he says he's shaking violently. A tumbler of gin followed by half a dozen bottles of beer would be required if I were to eat any breakfast. He's got a drink to eat. <clears throat> Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation. There were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. The, the greatest slayer of all uh, people of all the people who love us are these brief periods of sobriety. Because for a moment they look at us and they have exactly what Bill describes Lois having renewed my wife's. And they think things like, okay, well, now she's got it. She's finally got it. He's finally growing up. He's, he's figured it out. She's finally figured it out. You know, you do 25, 30 days, you're like a champion. You're back in the big bed, maybe. I mean, you got checking account privileges. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And then the next thing you know, we do a scenic turnout and pull the structure down once again, hope. It just devastates the people we love the most. They look at us and think, and they have this hope that this time he or she has it. This time they figured it out. This time they're going to get it. You know, my wife always says every time she, she would say, talk to me, she would think this is the time he's going to get it. This is the time he's going to hear it. This is the time he's just going to snap right out of it. And, you know, I hear it and it sounds great. I mean, these are all good suggestions people would give me. I just can't live it. I can't pull it through. If you ever tell them your story, like if you're asked to ever tell your story and in the middle of it, you just go blank, right? You're just in the middle and just, you're just right in the middle of thinking about yourself and you just lose it right there. This next line is just all you need to know gradually things got worse. I mean, that's all you got to say. And you're just picked right back up for wherever you are. And it's just smooth sailing from there on out, right? Gradually things got worse. Now remember, Bill's already living with his in-laws. So it's going to get worse than that, apparently. The house was taken over by the mortgage holder when the foreclosure, my mother-in-law died and my wife and father-in-law became ill. So this is, I mean, it's going south on Bill pretty quick. Then I got a promising business opportunity. Stocks were at the low point in 1932, and I had somehow formed a group to buy. I was to share generously in the profits. Then I went on a prodigious bender and the chance vanished. So Bill got this opportunity, and he goes, peddles it to his Wall Street guys, the ones that will still see him. 
and he's got this little deal and, and, and they tell him, Bill, this is, this could be a really good deal. And we close this deal. And if we can close it, we're going to make you president of the company, but here's a contract bill and you have to sign it. And the contract is if you drink, you forfeit all rights to everything. No question asked. You're just out. If you drink anything, you're out because these people know Bill. And Bill's like, no, I'll never drink. Sign me right up. And so the night before it was going to close, the, the, the Wall Street guys get a couple of their junior guys and say, take Bill over to Jersey, stash him at a hotel over there. Do not let him out and do not let him drink. And so these junior guys take Bill. It's like some kind of, you know, witness protection deal. They go to Jersey and they're, uh, and they're over there, but they don't know Bill. They don't know Bill. They don't know what Bill's like. And so they're all sitting around playing cards. And one of them reaches in his suitcase and pulls out a mason jar of white lightning. And he unscrews the top and takes a drink and he begins to pass it around it because they just don't know. They don't, they don't appreciate the gravamen of Bill's predicament. And they pass around, comes to Bill. Bill, you going to drink? No, I don't want anything. So it goes around, comes back around again. No, I don't want anything. The third pass, it gets to Bill, and the guy looks at him and says, Bill, don't you want to drink? This is Jersey Lightning. And Bill thinks, well, I've never had any Jersey Lightning before. And uh, so Bill starts drinking. They all go to bed. They get up the next morning. Bill's nowhere to be seen because the, the Cravens is on him, and he's busted loose. He's at large in Jersey, right? And so the whole deal craters. It never gets closed. Bill never gets nothing just wiped off, pull the whole structure down on us. I woke up. This had to be stopped. I saw I could not so much take one drink. I was through forever. Anybody ever made promises like this? I'm done forever. This is it. Just give me something to write it on. I'll just write it down. right. I'm done forever. Before then, I had written lots of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business. And so I did. Just put a lie detector on me. I mean, strap me up. Give me a lie detector. Give me the Bible, the Torah, the Quran. I don't care. Atlas Travel Guide. I'll start swearing on it. I'm, I'm good. Never going to do this again. What happened? Shortly afterwards, I came home drunk. There had been no fight. Where had my high resolve? Where had been my high resolve? I simply didn't know. It, it hadn't even come to mind. Someone had pushed a drink my way and I'd taken it. Was I crazy? I began to wonder for such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that. This appalling lack of perspective. The idea that, you know, I, I can't think the drink all the way through. You know, that kind of idea. That if I drink this tonight, I'm going to be in jail probably tomorrow. If I drink this tonight, if I take this one drink, because that stuff doesn't occur to me in the throes of alcoholism with no knowledge of the depth of alcoholism, I, that stuff never resonates with me. I don't think to drink all the way through because I can't. Why? No effective mental defense. Just absolutely no effective mental defense here. Somebody, somebody pushes a drink my way and I took it. Been, been me, 
been two drinks, three drinks in and think, God, I wasn't even going to drink tonight. Not even really cognizant of how I started. Thank God I wasn't going to drink tonight. Oh, well, heck with it. I'm here now. Let's just go get it on like Donkey Kong. I mean, we're just going to roll because once I'm in, right, Jesse, once I'm in, they ain't coming back for me. Once the craving is on me, I'm done. Renewing my resolve at the bottom of page five, renewing my resolve, I tried again. Sometime passed and confidence began to be replaced by cocksureness. I could laugh at the gin mills. Now I had what it takes. One day I walked into a cafe to telephone and no time I was beating on the bar asking myself how it happened. As the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I would manage better next time, but I might as well get good and drunk then, and I did. Because once I'm drinking... There is no turning back. There's no, hey, I got to stop. This is like going to somebody's house. They call you and say, hey, come over. We'll have some beers this afternoon. You think, all right, I'm in. And you go to their house and they go, hey, just go to the fridge and get you one. And you go to the fridge and they have three beers. Three. Just get pissed. Don't even drink them because you look, you know. You know if you start drinking one, it ain't going to work. Three ain't going to get there because you might have to share one. Then we're down to two. This is not going to work. Just get mad. Just get mad and leave. Or just stay there and be pissed off all day. Because once I start, it's over. The, the book tells me, the doctor's opinion tells me, this phenomenon of craving develops in me. Bill's expressing here in these last two little parables that he's written out. Once he starts... There's no letting go. Once he starts, I just might as well get good and drunk. I mean, there's no, hey, I'm just going to stop here at two and go home. There's none of that. That kind of conscious thought doesn't resonate. It says here, the remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably, and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. I hardly dare cross the street lest I collapse and be run down by an early morning truck for it was scarcely daylight. You ever notice Bill goes to the worst case scenarios? I, I know none of you people do that even now, even uh, don't go to the worst scenario. Tim never does. But, you know, I can have one of those deals, you know, where you get a headache and it lasts an hour and think I've got brain cancer. I just I need to go right now and get a CAT scan. Right, Sarah? I need something bad. It's bad. That's the kind of thing that happens. I mean, Bill has the worst, he's, he's a real alcoholic, has the worst case scenario. I can't cross the street, I'll get run over. <laughs> I mean, worst case scenario. He's always, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's gloom and doom always. It says, an all night place supplied me with a dozen bottle glasses of ale. My writhing nerves were stilled at last. A morning paper told me the market had gone to hell again. Well, so had I. The market would recover, but I wouldn't. That was a hard thought. Should I kill myself? Now, remember, just a couple of pages ago, back on page four, people were jumping from, from these big office buildings in New York City just two pages ago. And Bill says, coward's way out. When I'm going back to the bar. I'm going to go get me some liquid courage. That's disgust me, he says. That disgusts me that those people would kill themselves. Now, two pages later, he entertains the thought, should I kill myself? It's on the options on the table. Before it's dismissed, now the options on the table. No, not now. Not now. 
Then a mental fog settled down. Gin would fix that, two bottles and oblivion. The mind and body are marvelous mechanisms for mind endured this agony two more years. Sometimes I stole from my wife's slender purse when the morning terror and madness were on me. The obsession is so bad with Bill, man, he'll just go steal from the woods. I'm a thief, man. I, I get that. I used to steal money from my mom and my dad. My wife, in the last days of my drinking, I had my wife had a Texaco credit card that she let me have. I figured out how to get cash advances off a Texaco credit card, man. We're just industrious, Greg, aren't we? We just figure stuff out, man. You know, I found it had a thousand dollar limit. I go, man, I'm in. I'll take it. You just figure it out, and you can shake it out all you want. I'm stealing. I'm just stealing. Again, I swayed dizzily before an open window or the medicine cabinet where there was poison, cursing myself for a weakling. There were flights from the city to country and back as my wife and I sought escape. Then came the night when the physical and mental torture was so hellish, I feared I would burst through my window, sash and all. Somehow I managed to drag my mattress to a lower floor lest I suddenly leapt. Now, this is really important. Have any of you all ever been to Clinton Street in New York <clears throat> where Bill uh, lived with his... Uh, with his in-laws, anybody, everybody, anybody been to New York and just seen the brownstones there? You know, there's like a, you go down, it's like a basement and then you go up to the first floor and then they have a second or third floor with it, you know, something like that. So the brownstone on Clinton street where Bill lived with uh, Lois and her parents, they lived on the first floor and his, and, and her parents, her dad, lived what we would call the second floor upstairs. And so when Bill talks about, I'd have to, dr I drug my mattress to a lower floor. So I want you to imagine this. Bill is like a half a floor up. He's like six feet, five or six feet from the sidewalk that he's going to jump and kill himself, right? So he drags his mattress to the basement because he'll have to jump up to jump out. I mean, delusional we're talking about here. The bottom of the page, a doctor came with a heady, heavy sedative. Next day, found me drinking both gin and sedative. This combination soon landed me on the rocks. People feared for my sanity, so did I. I could eat little or nothing when drinking, and I was 40 pounds underweight. Bill's dying of alcoholism. Bill is absolutely dying of alcoholism. He's drinking himself to death. He's not eating, he's just drinking. He's living to drink. That's it. Page seven, first paragraph. My brother-in-law is a physician. And through his kindness and that of my mother, I was placed in a nationally known hospital for the mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics. This is Towns Hospital. So this is Bill's first visit to Towns for the very first time. He says, under the so-called belladonna treatment, my brain cleared, hydrotherapy and mild exercise helped much. Best of all, I met a kind doctor who explained, though certainly selfish and foolish, I had been seriously ill bodily and mentally. So Dr. Siltor explains to Bill, listen, you've got alcoholism. You have an allergy that once you start drinking, that allergy, that phenomenon of craving kicks in and you can't stop. And worse than that, you've got this obsession of the mind that always brings you back to the drink because that's all Silkworth knew. He didn't know the answer. He knew the problem, 
Bill, this is your problem. Well, gosh, Doc, what do I do? Well, just don't drink. I mean, you can get that, right? Well, just don't drink. Now, I have discovered in my 19 years that it is possible for an alcoholic to just not drink and be okay. But there's two conditions that have to always exist for an alcoholic, a real live alcoholic like Bill. They have to exist in order for a real alcoholic not to drink. And these are the two conditions. Nothing good can ever happen to you and nothing bad can ever happen to you. Now you find an alcoholic that nothing good happens to them or nothing bad happens to them. They can just not drink. But my experience is that something always good or bad happening to me, right? Always, mostly bad, mostly bad. And so this idea, what Silkworth would tell these drunks when they listen, and listen, just don't drink. Because that's all he had. He didn't have anything else. He had no, he didn't know what the solution was at this time. It says in the middle of page seven here, it relieved me somewhat to learn that an alcoholic's the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor, though it often remains strong in other respects. My incredible behavior in the face of the desperate desire to stop was explained. Understanding myself now, I fared forth with high hopes. For three or four months, the goose hung high. He's in tall cotton here. I went to town regularly and even made a little money. Surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. And I love how our book that we're going to get into, particularly when we get to chapter on alcoholism, more about alcoholism, this over and over and over with this idea that self-knowledge ain't ever going to be the trick for people like us, that we can be all knowed up. You can write a book on it, and that ain't going to be enough for a guy like me, a real alcoholic. won't be enough. It says, but it was not, for the frightful day came when I drank once more. The curve of my declining moral and physical and, and bodily health fell off like a ski jump. After a time, I returned to the hospital. So now here's Bill's second visit to Towns Hospital. This was the finish, the curtain, it seemed to me. My weary and despairing wife was informed that it would all end with heart failure during delirium tremens, or I would develop a wet brain perhaps within a year. She would soon have to give me over to the undertaker or the asylum. So I think I've described this before, but there might be some people here that's come in. And so I'll just describe it again. When Bill's in the hospital, Bill's in a ward. And um, so you might have like a, this big room and you'll have eight beds on one side and eight beds on the other, something like that. You know, walkway in the middle. And so for privacy, they just pull a curtain around you. You just got this curtain that goes around you, right? And so Bill's laying in the hospital bed, and they pull the curtain around him. And so Lois and Dr. Silkworth are like, just like right on the other side of the curtain. And so Silkworth's telling Lois all this, and Bill can just hear it. He hears everything they're saying. Hey, Lois, listen, Bill's in really bad shape. He's going to die. He's on his last leg here. If he, doesn't, if he doesn't quit this drinking, he's either going to die or he's going to have a wet brain. You're going to have to put him in an asylum because you won't be able to take care of him. And so Bill hears all this. It's not like they're down the hall. You know, it's like, hey, I'm right here. I can hear all this, right? I mean, he gets it. They're explaining to him. 
And the bottom page seven says, they did not need to tell me. I knew and almost welcomed the idea. It was a devastating blow to my, and here's a real interesting thing. When we turn the page, what heads the page of what it is? Pride. I, who had thought so well of myself and my abilities and my capacity to surmount obstacles, was cornered at last. That's how Bill sees himself. He sees himself as being cornered, that he's this guy who's always the ability to figure it out and that life has him cornered. It's them. It ain't, it's not him. It's not the drinking. Life has me cornered at last. Now I was to plunge in the dark, joining the endless procession of thoughts who had gone on before. I thought of my poor wife. There had been much happiness after all. What would I not give to make amends? But that was over now. This is the, this paragraph here is probably the greatest description of what um, incomprehensible demoralization feels like. It's probably the best description of it. No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. Welcome to step one. Welcome to step one. He's telling me I'm beat up. I'm whipped. I got nothing. I'm powerless over alcohol. My life's unmanageable. I'm done. But just knowing that, but just understanding that I'm done, that I'm beat up, that I'm cornered, that I got nothing left, just intellectually knowing that, that's not enough. Bill will drink again. Knowing this, Bill will drink again. Being in the hospital, listen to those people say, He's going to die. The next time he's going to go into DTs, he's 40 pounds underweight. He's dying of alcoholism. You're either going to have to bury him or give him to the undertaker. And Bill says, I'm, he gets it. I, I'm powerless over alcohol. That's not what he thinks, but that's what he's saying. I'm powerless over alcohol. Life is unmanageable for me, but he drinks again. Knowing all that, much self-knowledge he's got, he'll drink again. And so this, up to this point right here, Bill's been describing for us what he was like in a general way. In these first seven and a half pages, Bill has described for us what it talks about in chapter five that we describe in a general way what we were like. And now he's going to tell us what happened. We're going to get a little bit of a transition and he's going to tell us what happened. And so it says in the middle of page eight, trembling, I stepped from the hospital, a broken man. Fear sobered me for a bit. What do we know about fear? Works right up to the point that it quits working for us. I mean, there's a point where fear, I can be just scared to death, totally in terror. You give me a couple of days away from that. You give me a couple of days where I get back in the house and everybody's calmed down and nobody's yipping at me. And I think, my God, I almost had to go to AA. It was almost that bad. It was almost as bad I had to go to AA. My God, you know. So we know fear will work for a minute. It's just not sustaining. It says, then came the insidious insanity of the first drink. And on Armistice Day, 1934, that's Veterans Day. That's a pinpoint date. That's November 11th every year. November 11th, 1934, I was off again. So Bill Wilson gets out of the hospital, knowing he's whipped, knowing he's licked, 
No words can tell the loneliness and despair I found the bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched all around me. I met my match. I was overwhelmed. Alcohol is my master. He knows. But on November 11th, he's popping the top again. He says, everyone became resigned to the certainty that I would have to be shut up, shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end. How dark it is before the dawn. And my God, don't we know that? Don't exactly. We know just the day before I got here, it seemed like a, it seemed like a free fall in hell. It's like this emptiness. Bill describes it so well. No words can tell the loneliness and despair. It's that internal ache of restless, irritable discontent, that pull of anxious apartness that Bill writes about in step five and the 12 and 12. This idea that I'm just free falling, I'm absolutely free falling. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debauch. I was soon to be catapulted into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. Now, how does that happen for us? <laughs> Bill just described himself as pitiful. I mean, uh, he's in this spot. And then the next breath, he says, however... I was about to find myself in a position to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. And I think this is probably the most difficult thing to adequately describe because Bill's going to try to describe it for us. He's going to tell us what happened. But if I look back on my own sobriety, if I look back on August the 15th, 2001, I mean, I can give you the facts of what happened. I mean, I know exactly what happened that day. But to describe a transition from how he described himself at the top of this page and how he describes himself and what he found after that, it is difficult to describe with any kind of clarity and accuracy the miracle that happens. We can recite the facts. I can tell you, many of you have heard, know exactly what happened. You know Don the whole bit. But what really, that, that piece of what, what really happened internally, very difficult to describe. One minute, I can't imagine life not drinking. And in the blink of the eye, I can't ever imagine drinking again. And that's that's a hard that's a hard uh, uh, conversation to start because it's hard. It's a miracle. That's what it is. And miracles, as we know, is something that's unexplainable by any kind of, you know, like it's not explained by science, by medicine, by anything. It's just phenomenal. And so Bill continues here at the bottom of page eight, near the end of that bleak November. So he starts on November 11th. Remember, he starts drinking. Now we're here at near the end. So let's just call it. Let's call it the Monday after Thanksgiving. Why not? It says, um, I sat drinking in my kitchen. With a certain satisfaction, I reflected that there was enough gin concealed about the house to carry me through that night and the next day. See, everything Bill, everything Bill, every decision Bill makes divided by the drink. 
Let's see, I'm gonna be pinned up here in this house. Do I got enough booze to last me? Yeah. I gotta go downtown. How much is that gonna, how much booze is gonna take me to get downtown? Everything's divided by the drink. Where I'm going, when I go, do I got enough booze to get me there and get back? Everything's divided by the drink. It says, my wife was at work. I wonder whether I dared hide a full bottle of gin near the head of the bed. I would need it before daylight. My musing was interrupted by the telephone. The cheery voice of an old school friend asked if he might come over. He was sober. Notice it's italicized. Now, when you see anything in this book in italics, this is really important. And we look at this today and think, well, gee, we just go click up the uh, <laughs> that weird looking eye up on our toolbar on the word program. And it just changes everything to a towel. It's no big deal. But let me tell you about 1938, 1939, big deal, big deal. If you're in the publishing business and you're going to do something like this and you had that little line there, those three words that were in italics, when you ran the plates, you had to stop, take the plate out, put that plate in with just those three words, match it, run it, pull it out, labor intensive, very labor intensive. So when you see something that in this book that is in italics, we always think, well, yeah, they want us to see that. But back then there was a lot of effort made to do that. And so in 1939, when the book is published, when you were reading this, you think, man, that this is important. This is really important because they had to stop the presses to do this. And they do that over and over and over in the book with things that are really, really important for us to note. And Bill, in the first 100, they want us to know that the guy that calls Bill is sober. Bam. And it's one of Bill's old high school friends. On top page nine, I said, it was years since I could remember his coming to New York in that condition. I was amazed. <laughs> Rumor had it that he had been committed for alcoholic insanity. I wonder how he had escaped. Of course, he would have dinner and then I could drink openly with him. See, Bill's thinking, okay, if Eddie comes for dinner, I can drink in front of Lois because I'll have my friend there. And so I can just, I don't have to hide the gin. I don't have to wonder where the bottles are. Ebby's here. Hell, I just, it'd be impolite to not have a drink with Ebby at dinner. So now he's all happy that Ebby's coming because he can drink right out in the open <laughs> with Lois. You know, she may not like it, but it's, it's Ebby and he's my friend and I'm drinking with him. So Bill's just already scheming how this is going to play. He don't care about Ebby. He's just going to use Ebby. He's got, a, he has assigned a role to Ebby. Ebby's role is puppet for the night. <laughs> you be here and I can drink. That's it. Unmindful of his welfare, I thought only of recapturing the spirit of other days. Man, when I hit that line, Don looked at me and he said, did you ever drink like that? Bam, he had me. Every time I drank, I would think about how it was in, in like 1984, that one night. When I went out and it was magic, man. I mean, I went out to the tea bar here in Oklahoma City and it was the perfect night. I mean, it was the perfect night. Every time I drank, I think it's gonna be that night again. 
I'm going to recapture that moment one more time. I'm going to go ahead and do it. It's hard to do, you know, when you're 24, that's one thing. When you're 41, tough to get that deal going. Tough to get the chainsaw out, making some moves at 41, man. So, but the delusion, the insanity, the delusion that created by alcoholism, I'm going to recapture this exact moment. He said, there was a time we had chartered an airplane to complete a jag. His coming was an oasis in the dreary desert of futility. Futility because, no, he can't drink in the open. It's all hidden. It's all on the table. He, he, Lois knows, but Bill's hiding his booze thinking she don't know. The delusion. Nobody knows about my drinking. I mean, he's drunk every night she comes home. I mean, she's clued in on it, man. She's hip to Bill's drinking. It says the very thing, an oasis, drinkers are like, man. Now, let me tell you about Ebby. Ebby was the uh, son of very uh, well-to-do political family in New York. His, he had an uncle that was a state treasurer, several state senators, representatives. There's a park in Ithaca, Thatcher Park. I think it's in Ithaca. There's a park there named after his family. Uh, they were a political powerhouse family, New York politics. But Abby's a total disaster. I mean, he's just a disaster. And so they send him up to the summer home, uh, uh, and he is up there, and he's in this big house, and uh, he's looking around, and he's thinking, man, my family, they're so good to me. And, you know, he gets all this bitter remorse and despair. He starts drinking, of course. That's what we do. Gets in the car, goes for a drive. Of course, that's what you do. It's like seven in the morning. He goes driving and he's at this curve in the road, but he doesn't negotiate the curve very well. And he ends up crashing his car into some farmer's house, into their kitchen. You know, we're not talking about bricks. It was, uh, you know, wood. And there he goes in and the wife's there and she's got breakfast cooking. And here's Ebby in his car comes crashing through and, she looks at Abby and he says, I'll have a cup of coffee or whatever. And, you know, they call the police and it's a bad day for Abby. And he goes and goes in front of the judge. The judge gives him that deal because he knows his family, you know. I don't ever want to see you back in this court again, young man. You know that finger, Arlene. You know that deal. He just don't see you back here again. So now Abby's really remorseful, you know. He's a couple of days away from that. And he's home thinking, bad, bad deal. Abby start thinking. And he thinks, you know, I need to do something good for my family. I'm going to paint this house. Now, this is a big house. If you ever see pictures of it, I mean, the, the Thatcher home is a big house. It's got those big spires, you know, big house, big corner lot. And so Eddie go get some paint and says, I'm going to paint the house. And he gets a ladder. Of course, you got to have one of those. And he probably gets about six feet high, about an eight foot wide swath. He gets tired. It's hot. And so I said, I'm just going to go out. I'm going to get a chair and I'm going to sit out here and I'm going to admire this eight foot by six foot swath that I've painted. And it was hot. So he thought, I better have a couple of beers and cool off out here. I don't want to get too overheated. Well, Eddie's alcoholic. He starts one. He has 30, right? So he's drinking and he's looking, he's admiring his handiwork. That's so lovely. And some pigeons come along. And pigeons just do what they do, right? They just take a dump right on his right on his painting, right where he's painted. And Abby's pissed. 
He's got a resentment of the first class. He goes in and gets a shotgun. Now, listen, we're in the middle of town, middle of town. He goes against a shotgun and just starts shooting the pigeons. Bam, bam, bam. This does not make his neighbors very happy. So the two policemen who came and got him out of the house, the farmer's house, come get him again, back to jail the next morning, back to the judge. Remember, don't ever want to see you in here again. No, sir, I'll never be back. Two or three days later, Abby's back. And there was two guys in the courtroom that day. Roland Hazard, Sieber Graves. They've been sober in the Oxford group. We'll learn more about Roland and Sebra. And uh, the judge is getting ready to put the hammer on him. And he sees Roland out there and says, Mr. Hazard, do you have some interest in this matter? And Roland steps up and says, yes, Judge, I do. Now, Roland's a wealthy family out of New York. If you go to the Calvary Mission Baptist Church, my friend Larry S. from Atlanta has a picture on his website. You can see it of the uh, Calvary, the, the hazard name on the stained glass window. Wealthy family, industrious family in New York. But Roland was a drunk. And so, but Roland was sober. And he says, yes, I do, Judge. He said, why don't you, why don't you give Ebby to us? And let, it, let us take him out to the farm. So they had started the little Oxford Group compound at a little farm out there, a gentleman farm, 15 acres or so, whatever. So why don't you give him to us, Judge, and let us take him out to the farm. Now, Sebra Graves, who is also with Roland, is a bad drunk, was a bad drunk too. And, and Sebra had gone with Roland and, and gotten sober in Oxford Group. And the judge was also Sebra's daddy. And so when Roland said, why don't you give him to us, the judge had some confidence because he knew that his son had gotten sober with Roland. So why don't you give him to us and let us take him out to the farm. And he said, okay, Mr. Graves, I'm going to release Mr. Thatcher to your custody, but I'm holding you responsible. He said, that's fine. So Abby goes to the farm, gets sober, has a spiritual experience, gets to be wintertime. They leave the farm to come back to New York City. He's working in a soup kitchen at the Calvary Baptist Church. And, and, and Bill Wilson keeps coming to his mind. Sees Lois, says, Lois, how's Bill? I've been thinking about him. She's not doing good, Abby. Bill's about dead. Bill's about dead. He's bad alcoholic. He's been to the hospital twice. Doctor said if he doesn't get something happen to him, he's going to die. Or I'm going to have to put him in an insane asylum. He's going to get wet brain. And he said, would it be okay if I call him? She said, I wish you would, Ebby. And that sets the stage where we're at. That when Ebby calls Bill, and Bill, of course, delusional, hell yeah, get over here, I can drink openly. That's all he's thinking about. But page nine in the middle says, the door opened and he stood there fresh-skinned and glowing. There was something about his eyes. Now, we know when Bill says there's something about his eyes, we know what that is. We come to Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm dead. There's nobody home. Nothing. Dead eyes. Because I'm asleep. I'm spiritually asleep. But Bill, who's dead-eyed, looks at Abby and looked at him. He's cleaned up. Probably had a bath. <laughs> nice clothes on. But Bill zeroes in on his eyes. He says there's something about his eyes. 
and everybody in this room who's worked with newcomers and watched new people in AA, you've been there on that day in a meeting when suddenly they're just, the lights just come on. They have that awakening. They have that moment where it's like all the tumblers fit, all that lines up, and they're just suddenly, oh, my God, that's what they're talking about. Bill sees that. The windows to the soul, they say. Bill sees Abby's eyes, and it's so stark to him that it captivates him. There's something about his eyes. He was inexplicably different. Bill can't explain it. He's something about him different, but he can't explain what it is. What had happened? I pushed a drink across the table. He refused it, disappointed but curious, because he's thinking, if Abby ain't drinking, I ain't going to get to drink in front of Lois. That's all he's thinking about. I'm out. I got to go hide the bottles again. Disappointed but curious, I wonder what had got into the fella. He wasn't himself. Come, what's all this about, I queried. He looked straight at me, simply but smilingly. He said, I've got religion. Now, I want you to think about this. Abby Thatcher gets sober in the Oxford Group. Oxford Group, first century Christian movement, started by a guy named Frank Buchmann from uh, Europe. They got their name because of uh, 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 they were in Africa doing a trip and Somebody said, whose luggage is this? And it says it's those Oxford groupers because they were from Oxford, England. That's how you get a name around here, apparently, just wherever you're from. It's those Oxford groupers that stuck. They became known as the Oxford group. And they were a first century Christian movement. And this was, they kind of looked at this like before they were popes, bishops, saw this structure in churches. They took it back down to where just people help people, right? They just ministered to each other. First century Christian, heavy emphasis here on Christian. I want you to listen to this. This is what Ebby has, and it's important to understand that at this point. That's what Ebby's got, Oxford Group, first century Christian movement, Right? Don't be confused about what it is. It's a Christian movement because it becomes important, really important. He says, I was aghast. <laughs> so that was it. Last summer, an alcoholic crackpot. Now I suspect a little cracked about religion. He had that starry-eyed look. See, he's still focusing on those eyes. He can't get the eyes out of his head. Those eyes of Ebby's are making him <laughs> a little wiggly, right? He said, yes, the old boy was on fire, all right, but bless his heart. That's what they say in Alamon, right? When you don't get it, bless their heart. My God, maybe they'll get it, right, Annalisa? That's what you say? That's what you say to it. Bless their heart. But which really means just keep coming back. You're really sick. You need to be here. <laughs> uh, he said, bless his heart. Let him rant. Besides, my gym would last longer than his preaching. Preaching. But he did no ranting. In a matter of fact way, he told about how two men who had appeared in court, Roland Hazard, Sieber Graves, had appeared in court persuading the judge, Judge Graves, to suspend his commitment. They had told of a simple religious idea, spiritual experience. You got to have a spiritual experience and a practical program of action. The six tenets of the Oxford group. That was two months ago and the result was self-evident. It worked. So Ebby's two months old, two months sober, and he's out carrying the message to Bill. 
He had come to pass his experience along to me. If I cared to have it. Interesting. See, Ebby's coming to ensure his sobriety. Ebby's coming to ensure his sobriety. He came to pass his experience along to me if I cared to have it. If I didn't care to have it, that's okay too. That's why ever 12, that's why I'm a hundred percenter on 12 step calls. hundred percent. Everyone I've ever gone on, I'm a hundred percent. I've never drank after one of them. I'm a hundred percenter, man. And every once in a while, one of those knuckleheads to get sober and that's a bonus. That's like 102%, right? Because <laughs> they might catch it every once in a while because my obligation is to try. It's exactly what Eddie was doing here. He came to pass it along if he cared to have it. Eddie's there to ensure his sobriety. And if Bill catches it, God bless him. Top of page 10, I was shocked, but interested. Certainly I was interested. I had to be for I was hopeless. Hopeless without a chance of success. That's what hopeless means, without a chance of success. Bill knows. Bill knows the truth. I'm hopeless. He talked for hours. Now listen to this. He talked for hours. Childhood memories rose before me. I could almost hear the sound of the preacher's voice as I sat on those still Sundays way over there on the hillside. There was a proffered temperance pledge I never signed. My grandfather's good-natured contempt of some church folks and their doings. His insistence that the spheres had their music, but his denial of the preacher's right to tell him how he must listen. His fearlessness as he spoke of these things just before he died. These recollections welled up from the past. They made me swallow hard. So listen here. It says he talked for hours, but Bill's not hearing anything he's saying. Bill's thinking about Bill. He's telling us what he's thinking about while Abby's talking. He's not listening to Abby. He's just droning on. Bill's focused on, my God, all this stuff from his past. And he's getting it. You know, Bill's been drinking. Bill's in the throes of the cravings, man. He's drinking. He's into all this. He's just thinking about Bill. The wartime day in old Winchester Cathedral came back. I had believed in a power greater than myself. Here's Bill going to talk a little bit about step two. I believed in a power greater than myself. I had often pondered these things. I was not an atheist. Few people really are, for that means the blind faith in the strange proposition that the universe originated in a cipher and aimlessly rushes nowhere. My intellectual heroes, the chemists, the astronomers, even the evolutionists suggested vast laws and forces at work. Despite contrary indications, I had little doubt that a mighty purpose and rhythm underlay all. How could there be so much in precise and immutable laws and no intelligence? I simply had to believe in a spirit of the universe who, neither, who knew neither time nor limitation, but this is far as I had gone. With ministers of the world religions, I parted right there. When they talked of a God personal to me who would love and superhuman strength and direction, I became irritated and my mind snapped shut against such a theory. To Christ, I conceded the certainty of a great man, not too closely followed by those who claimed him. Now, remember, that's what Ebby's got. This is what Ebby's got. First century Christianity. Again, very important. His moral teachings, most excellent. For myself, I adopted those parts which seemed convenient and not too difficult. The rest I disregarded. This is my whole life. This is a deal. I'd do anything. 
If I can do it, this is the greatest thing ever. If I go out and I got to practice to get good at it, I, this sucks. I'm out. I don't want, I want to be the best at everything I do, but if it requires any work, I'm done. I just need some natural talent, which I have none, by the way. But if I had some, I would use that, but I, I'm not good at anything. And so I don't do anything. And so when Bill talks about it, it's just a cafeteria style. Some of us come to AA and want it to be cafeteria style. Okay, I'll do that. Maybe a little of this. Maybe a side of step 10. I don't want all of it. Just a side of it. Maybe a little prayer meditation. It's not like that. The wars which have been fought, the burnings and the chicanery that, that religious disputes have facilitated made me sick. I honestly doubted whether on balance the religions of mankind had done any good. Judging from what I had seen in Europe and since, the power of God in human affairs was negligible. The brotherhood of man, a grim jest. If there was a devil, he seemed the boss universal, and he certainly had me. So here Bill talks about Christ, God, and the devil all in one paragraph, in two paragraphs there. It said, but my friend sat before me, and he certainly, he said, and he made the point-blank declaration that God had done for him what he could not do for himself. It's point blank. Eddie, how did you do this? God did this for me. Bam. His human will had failed. Doctors had pronounced him incurable. Society was about to lock him up. Like myself, he had admitted complete defeat. Remember, Bill? I'm whipped. Alcohol was my master. Says he had admitted complete defeat. Then he had, in effect, been raised from the dead suddenly taken from the scrap heap to a level of life better than the best he'd ever known. Had this power originated in him? Obviously it had not. There had been no more power in him than there was in me at that minute. And that was none at all. So Bill C and Abby here in a totally different light. Abby's making a point. He's telling him all about, he's giving him, Oxford group, man. He's hammering Oxford group. He's proselytizing to Bill. He's looking for a conversion experience. He's giving him Jesus right down the pipe, man. It's a, it's a right over the, he's hanging Jesus right over the front plate, just right in the sweet spot for Bill, just to tattoo it over the, over the back wall. I mean, he's giving it to him. He just, he's laying it on him. And he's saying, God has done for me what I could not do for myself. And Bill's flabbergasted. He goes, man, Abby, me, we're the same. I mean, he's identifying here. He's just like me, going to be locked up, going to be put in an asylum, gone forever. He's just like me. He, he didn't got that. He had no power in him. Zero in me. Where did that come from? He says, that floored me. It began to look as though religious people were right after all, because that's what he's getting. Here was something at work in a human heart which had done the impossible. My ideas about miracles were drastically revised right then. Never mind the musty past. Here set a miracle directly across the table, the kitchen table. He shouted great tidings. And you notice he said, he said he didn't rant. So when he says he shouted great tidings, Bill's saying his actions, because he sorry said he did no ranting. Ebby's actions portrayed great tidings. His demonstration to Bill shouted great tidings to him. He said, I saw that my friend was much more than inwardly reorganized. He was on a different footing. His roots grasped 
new soil. Something was different. Despite the living example of my friend, there remained to me the vestiges of my old prejudices. Now, old prejudices are things like, you can, another word for those are just old ideas. You know, things that I believe are right without any information. I mean, God forbid that. I mean, I just believe they're right because I believe they're right. Just believe they're right. That's a prejudice. I've got no idea about the subject matter, but I'm going to form some opinions anyway. He says, the word God still aroused a certain antipathy. When the thought was expressed that there might be a God personal to me, this feeling was intensified. I didn't like the idea I could go for such conceptions as creative intelligence, universal mind or spirit of nature, but I resisted the thought of a czar of the heavens, however loving. But that's what Ebby's given him. He's given him first century Christianity. And Bill's tussling with that. He says his sway might be, it says, says however loving his sway might be. I have since talked to scores of men who felt the same way. Now here's the critical piece right here. Abby pounding on him and figuratively, he's giving him and the demonstration he's making first century Christianity. You got to get Jesus, right? Because that's first century Christianity. And then listen to the next line. My friend suggested what then seemed to be a novel idea. He said, why don't you choose your own conception of God? This would be like Billy Graham getting up and saying, you know what? Just you guys just choose whatever you believe in. And I'm good with that, right? I mean, it's that drastic in that moment. If you really think about it, because every sober, every sober on first Christian, first century Christianity and he looks at Bill and he says, Bill, why don't you just choose your own conception? If you can't get with this, just choose your own conception. It's revolutionary. Why is that revolutionary? Why is that a big deal? It's a big deal for a couple of reasons. One is it eliminates the religious factor. Boom, out the door. Just automatically off the table. I mean, Ebby's there, give it to him, and just in a heartbeat, he says, just choose your own conception. Immediately takes religion off the table for all of us and for a whole big chunk of us freed us right up, freed us right up. And the second thing it did, if you choose your own conception of God, who are you going to argue with? I mean, <laughs> if Drew comes to me and starts complaining about God, I just look at him and say, well, you picked him? <laughs> I can't, uh, I can't really help you with that. I can't argue with him. I mean, there's nothing to argue about then you got to get another conception. If that one ain't working, let's get another one. It eliminated all arguments for us. Two things that freed alcohol. It took religion off the table and eliminated every argument. Because alcoholics like to argue. And we love to argue about God. Either he exists or he doesn't. It doesn't matter to us. We'll take either side. We're like good lawyers around here. We'll just argue about everything. Whether we know anything or not, we'll just argue about it. So I'm going to leave you with that this week. Think about how important on that moment. Eddie, who's sober on Oxford Group, first century Christian, how important it was in that moment in time for Eddie to look at Bill and contrary to what he had been taught in the Oxford Group, look at Bill and say, why don't you just choose your own conception of Bill? Powerful. Powerful moment for Alcoholics Anonymous. Powerful moment for all of us. Love you guys. Wendy, 
Thank you so much, Cliff. That was fantastic.